Section 15 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3. The Centralized Monarchy. Chapter 1. The Renaissance. Part 1. There are seasons in history when the human spirit seems to bud and blossom. Great inventions, glorious discoveries, start into life and fresh horizons open at every turn nations have their aprils when the world seems to flower with a fortunate novelty such a springtime such an easter pervaded all europe in the last half of the fifteenth century inventions discoveries retrievals and revivals combined to fill the times with new notions fresh ideas if charles the seventh was able in so few years to reorganize the whole system of his armies suppressing the feudal companies and communal train bands inaugurating a national army and a state artillery it was those new cannons that had seemed such toys at crecy which enabled the king to centralize his forces the bombards and bullets of the siege of orleans were already powerful engines of battle a little later the generalization of portable firearms favored the increase of regular troops the knight errant with his lance the feudal lord plated from top to toe and followed by his men-at-arms even the terrible archers of england were vanquished by anticipation no longer a living dread but a curious survival powerless in front of the heavy artillery of the state a greater invention than gunpowder did still more to inaugurate the modern age at mayence on the rhine in 1456 a printer named gutenberg improving on the discovery of a dutch inventor laurent coster of harlem gave to the world as the result of patient experiment a bible printed with movable metallic type and a new sort of press the printing press awoke in europe an enthusiasm which we may compare to that which in our own times greeted the automobile or the aeroplane whole families from generation to generation gave themselves up to the perfection of the wonderful mechanism at venice in fourteen ninety four a professor of greek and latin founded the famous aldine press at paris in fifteen o two a young french nobleman henri etienne tarnished his ancestral shield with a smear of printer's ink and though his father cut him off with a shilling for it turned tradesman founding that illustrious dynasty of the etienne which has made his name forever dear to book lovers it was good in those days to be a printer for one had plenty to print the fall of constantinople taken by the turks in fourteen fifty three had dispersed and sent out into exile the learned greeks and byzantines who still continued the tradition of antiquity in the shadow of saint sophia they fled for shelter and protection first to florence then to france bringing their sheaves with them sheaves of priceless manuscripts the writings of plato of aristotle of the great classic dramatists aristotle had filtered down to modern times through the perversions and translations of his disciples the arab philosophers of spain 
but Plato came almost as a revelation. In the end of the 15th century, one Marsilio Ficino of Florence translated into Latin the works of Plato and of Plotinus. It is impossible to overestimate the influence of this new learning on the religious ideal of France. This new world of inventions and ideas was doubled by a real, a material new world. On the 12th of October, 1492, Christopher Columbus discovered, as he thought and intended, the eastern coast of Asia, but it was America. In that voyage and two others, rapidly succeeding, he brought into human ken, and under the sway of Spain, a new world, the West Indies, as America was called at first. I have read in a very early printed pamphlet, and incunable, as we book-lovers say, of the new-discovered land beyond the Ganges, and in fact Christopher Columbus on sighting land supposed that he had reached the further side of India, which is why we still call the indigenous race the Red Indians. So great a discovery meant a readjustment of all that preceded it, and by its immense increase of Spanish wealth and Spanish power, the voyage of Christopher Columbus disturbed the balance of power in Europe. In the sixteenth century we shall find the great rival and enemy of France to be no longer England, but Spain. There is, however, an interlude between the rivalry of France and England and the rivalry of France and Spain with the Empire, which interlude was occupied by several successive French invasions of Italy, expeditions which did but little from the point of view of territorial aggrandizement, but which exercised the greatest possible influence on the development of art and life in France. Italy was in those days the very fount of beauty, the reservoir of all that remained of Greece and Rome, ideas and relics, and certainly it was not in view of completing their education that for thirty years and more, from 1493 until 1525, the armies of France streamed across the Alps in recurrent floods, but the diffusion of classic culture was after all the chief result of all their battles. The France we know would not have been the France we know, but for those madcap expeditions. After a hundred years of waste and carnage, France had swung back to the intellectual position which she had occupied under Charles the Wise. Then, too, Italy, antiquity, had occupied her. Then already Aristotle, Augustine, Boethius, and Seneca were names to conjure with. That spirit, half romantic and half stoical, which more and more as times go on, we shall associate with what is most characteristically French. And then came the Hundred Years' War. In fact, those revolutions and wars by which we date history are often not landmarks, but obstacles to history. Still, as a river sometimes flows underground for a portion of its course, emerging undiminished, the trend of thought which had taken its rise in the court of Charles V was merely lost to sight during the succeeding century. That preoccupation with the idea of the state, that conception of social unity, the desire of a general education and amelioration for l'université du commun peuple 
all that sense of mind and morals and rational progress was not wasted but was indeed the distant the unapparent impulse which set in movement the reforms of charles the seventh and his son king louis to the average english playgoer louis the eleventh is a personage of a grisly yet comic odiousness something like a french hunchback richard but to the student of history this unamiable individual appears as a great king the precursor of modern royalty in fact one of the monarchs that france could least have spared an ungrateful and rebellious son a neglectful and indeed a cruel husband to that unhappy poetess margaret of scotland a false friend a treacherous guest a hypocrite an egoist a hypochondriac and a miser and with no grace of mind or person to carry off and compensate so many disadvantages for this great prince was to look at the merest lout with shabby clothes all wrinkled round his crook-kneed spindle-legs and a battered slouch-hat throwing a friendly shadow on his long coarse nose still louis the eleventh was a person of parts and a man of power he was patient and wise and knew how to draw the maximum of profit from every disagreeable experience as heir to the throne he had been the friend of the feudal nobles and had raised more than one revolt against the centralizing government of his father charles the seventh but when his time came to reign he turned his coat with a vengeance and so much so that his outraged associates of yesterday incensed by his cynical apostasy banded themselves together in an alliance oddly misnamed the league of public weal but in the end louis got the better of them all the universal spider spread his web it is the name given him by a burgundian chronicler l'universel araignée and in his tangle of wars treaties matches and marriage contracts last wills and testaments contracts and bargains he caught all the glittering flies of french feudality and sucked them dry and one by one he added their possessions to the crown domains between fourteen seventy two and fourteen eighty two he thus accumulated armagnac alencon nemours part of the great turbulent province of burgundy the towns of the somme artois roussillon franche-comte anjou maine provence and therewith the rights of the house of anjou to the throne of naples louis the eleventh was the master builder of french territorial unity nor did he neglect the wise administration of the kingdom that he builded he instituted three new parliaments at grenoble bordeaux and dijon which brought the king's justice within reach of the people and kept in check the local pretensions of the feudal lords he created a central postal service a thing that seems so necessary to civilization that we can hardly imagine a world without it but there had been none in france since charlemagne who had for a while revived the postal service of the romans louis the eleventh in fourteen sixty four established on all the high roads of france at stages of four leagues apart 
a series of post-houses with relays of four or five swift horses and a postmaster in each but the jealous king reserved the system for the royal service he opened countless roads canals mines founded many manufactures markets fairs attracting to france the cleverest craftsmen of the neighbouring countries he established a printing press not only in paris but at lyon caen poitiers angers he instituted the provincial universities of valence bourges caen and besancon in fact he prepared the meagre and convalescent kingdom which he had inherited for a great outburst of prosperity and culture and when in fourteen eighty three he died always privately execrable and publicly execrated he had lifted france into the front rank of nations End of section fifteen